Good morning. Are you guys awake? Did you sleep well? Good. Five hours. So you guys, yeah, you guys have a lot of church services. You know that. (laughs) There is in every venture in a camp meeting uh, when I when I do them, which is not often anymore. There's always a service and there's always a night where I just sort of throw it out there and it leaves a lot of hanging chads. And last night was that night. And um, and when I got back to the room, my wife said graciously, you pushed it tonight. (laughs) uh, You need to be nice tomorrow. So, so, so my, she's not here uh, this morning. So let's go, man. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true because word will get back. So I'm going to do nice and I'm going to try to, I'm going to, let me take a few minutes to clean up some of the debris. <laughs> I, um, uh, I got to clean up some questions. Some of you have asked, what's that piece that you read last night? It's a piece by G.D. Watson. He's an old Methodist preacher of about 120, 130 years ago. It's called Others May, You Cannot. You can find it on Google or they'll put it over my head on the screen. You can get that from uh, Peter Moore when, when this is over, if you're not able to find it yourself. It's a nice, it's a beautiful piece that really kind of empowered me to live a life that I was at one time thinking this was just too hard to, this isn't fair. Of course it's not fair. (laughs) Jesus did not come to make your life happy. He came to make it abundant. And for a while, because of your bent, that's going to feel hard. But once you learn the new way, then you discover that Jesus is not just the son of God. He is also right. (laughs) He is really, really smart. And he understands how your life works. Some of you are asking the question, uh, what exactly is Dutch love? (laughs) I apologize for that errant comment. Every now and then there is something that just slips out. My mother warned me about this. And I was hot. And as I walked off, I just said, hotter than Dutch love up here. (laughs) And... And then you, some of you came up and said, well, what exactly does that mean? The best answer was when Devin's wife asked the question, and Devin just turned around, looked at her, and winked and said, the Dutch love well. <laughs> if you still don't know what I mean, ask your mothers. Um, the third is some of you pushed back, uh, not put, you were asking questions about, so if, if we're not just asking people to accept Christ, then what exactly do you do when you invite people into the life of Jesus Christ? And well, that's pretty much what I do. I invite people into the life of Jesus Christ. What I ask them to do is I ask them to take whatever of themselves they understand 
or whatever of themselves that they know and throw it recklessly into whatever of Jesus they understand. That allows for differing levels of comprehension. Some people reaching out for Christ have not even discovered themselves yet, let alone Jesus. But that's okay. There are entry levels here. What we're asking for is people to take whatever they discover of themselves and give it to whatever they know of Jesus. And as their lives mature, then the meaning of that will mature with them. The thing I wanted to leave in your memory last night is, at least from my narrow window of the world, there is not such a thing as a disciple who is not preoccupied with Jesus. What Christ does is he changes our preoccupation. You can keep your occupation and become a marketplace multiplier, but your preoccupation must change from your career to your reputation to your portfolio and whatever it is that you're thinking about all the time in Lock on to the person, Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be a disciple. Some have said, if there are no formulas for this, then why are there verses that suggest this? For instance, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It comes out of Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer. It seems in that place there's pretty clear way in how to be saved. The trouble is that the word believe in the Greek and in the Gospels is a vast term. So don't, don't, I won't do the work for you, but if you want to have fun someday and you have lots of time, read the Gospels and make notice of every time someone in the Gospels is said to believe in Jesus. Write down the reference, write down in one sentence what that person is doing when they are said to believe in Jesus. And what you'll notice is there is no one pattern of behavior that works in every cases. And you'll notice that there are people who are being saved who are never asking to be forgiven. So it's really hard to package a plan of salvation from the Gospels at least when there seems to be no pattern to this. We have a man who is paralyzed in Matthew chapter 9 and Jesus just walks up and says, take heart, son, your sins be forgiven. He didn't ask to be forgiven and he is forgiven. And the Pharisees say, well, how can you do this? Only God forgives sins. And Jesus says, so that you may know that I have the power to do both, take up your mat and walk. The man is healed. Now they know he can both heal and forgive sins. But the man didn't ask to be forgiven. The woman of Samaria didn't ask to be forgiven. She simply said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And they said, this could be the man. Do you see what's happening in that story? These people that are far away from Christ, in that moment, she says, this could be the man. She turns and she faces the center, the man, Jesus Christ. And it is that turning, that changing of preoccupation that means she is beginning to believe. Are you still tracking? 
So you see, it's messy, but that's okay. Religious people like packages so we can play them in any context. But what you read in the gospels is the gospel must take the context that it enters. It is the power of God, but we have to take time to discern what the real predicament is and then release the gospel into it. You all right? Now, you're thinking this must be the benediction. <laughs> Last night, all we were saying was that The church in the last four years has, the church here in the last four years uh, has drifted from the center to the boundaries. We have begun to define ourselves by the very things it takes to get into the community and then we've tried to protect those things. And all I was trying to say last night is that we have to get back to making Jesus famous again in his own church. And what that means is there is no personality, there is no band, there is no elder, and there is no cause that is more important than Jesus. We have to reestablish aggressively what it means to believe in Jesus. What we've done is drifted out of that to a bunch of Causes. There has come up within the body little groups or causes with special interests. They have found each other and they are tearing the body apart. So the focus has drifted away from the center to the boundaries. Rather than use the boundaries to define the center, we're starting to use Jesus to endorse the boundaries. Certain positions on one issue or another. So all we were saying is when that happens to an organization, they immediately become ultra conservative. They shut everything down. They become really specific, even legalistic, because they're afraid. They're operating out of fear. They protect themselves. The next generation will then open the gaps. They will let more people in. Those people will form special interest groups inside the church, and they will start to tear at the fabric of the church. And this is exactly, in my opinion, this was only my opinion, where we have been in the last three or four years. So what I want to talk about this morning then is what do we do with our faith communities, with our churches, to make them like the personality of Christ? You see, this is the problem. When we endorse the boundaries with Jesus' words, we always end up referring to Jesus' convictions, but we never refer to Jesus' dispositions or his behaviors. We will quote what Jesus said as though all he had was opinions. 
But Jesus was God in the flesh. He also had dispositions and values. And what we've done is we've ignored his dispositions to become passionate about his convictions. And we've begun to mow people over in the name of righteousness or justice or passion. Are you still there? And this is simply a call to say, if we are going to be Christ-centered, we must center ourselves around not just his ideas, but his personality, his ways, how he lives with the Father and the Spirit in the Holy Trinity. The goal is to take the current that is running between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and translate that into our faith communities so we become a reflection of the triune God. That's the goal. Does that make sense? With that in mind, take your Bibles or phones and turn to Philippians chapter 2. I'm in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, church. St. Paul to the church at Philippi, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if you have tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, schema, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, <laughs> God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Verse 14, so do everything without complaining or arguing. 
so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you all hold out the word of life, the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can be seated. I'm taken up with this passage in Philippians chapter 2 because he describes in my mind the kind of community that God is trying to form on earth. This community is vastly different from the culture that we live in. But it is hard work to hold this community together and to train one another to live and act in certain ways. And so I'm asking myself this morning, how is it that we are to live together in this body? If we were to have the dispositions and the personality of Christ, if we were to live with one another the way that the Father lives with the Son... How would we treat one another? How would we act? Not only with our friends, but with our adversaries. How would we treat people who disagree with us? Who don't like us? How would we treat people in our churches or our communities when they disappoint us? When they fail and they let us down? Or when they succeed and become overambitious, what would the posture of the church be to the person and how would the person live with other people in that church? That is the nature of the question. And I think Paul addresses it in this passage by saying, you are united in Christ. Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together, we have no union except that which is in Christ. We should make this clear. The union that we have with one another in the church is not a social construct. The reason we are a community is not because we agree with one another or because we're all, how you say it, on the same page. We are a community because God has baptized us in the spirit into one body. And that is a fact. So we take all of our differences with us into the body with a deep commitment to edify or build up the other person. Because the union is always and only in Christ. Bonhoeffer says, if a person comes in to a church and they are seeking a union or a community that is founded not in Christ, but in other causes, they are looking for a community they have not found elsewhere. That's all it is. It is some failed attempt to find a community after their liking, and so they left the last place, and they're now coming to your place and hoping that they'll find it there. That is a flawed attempt 
to find a unity that doesn't actually exist. The union that exists in the church is the union formed by Jesus Christ. Are you there? So Paul says that you are united in Christ. He says you have the same mind. You have the same heart. You have the same love. He says you are married in one spirit. You're like, well, that's odd because we've been going at it for the last couple of years. So Paul then turns around and tells us rules, more or less, for making our communities centered on Christ. Here's the first one. I think it's in verse 3. I'd have to run and look. Rule number one, check your ego at the door. Paul says there should be no selfish ambition or vain conceit. There should be no attempt for you to say, I've just got to say this because, well, I got to get it off my chest. No, this isn't about you. This is about the body. It doesn't do anyone any good for you to express your convictions. It's like throwing up on people. We're glad you feel better. Now we're a mess. So if you feel compelled to share your convictions with the body, then you have to take responsibility for the unintended consequences of that. You cannot just say, well, I didn't intend for everybody to feel bad and for me to cause a fight. That was not what I wanted to do. Too bad it happened because you did what you did. So you have to own the intended consequences and the unintended consequences. And knowing that there are serious unintended consequences to you giving expression to everything you feel ought to serve as a checkpoint. I promised my wife I would calm down this morning. The second rule follows this. He says, let each of you value the other above yourself. Not equal, above. Let each of you look onto the interests, and this is where the NIV missed the translation. The Greek does not say, look not only onto your own interests, but also onto the interests of others. No, no. In the Greek, it says, do not look at your own interests, full stop. Look at the interests of others. He is telling you to let go of your own interests and trust that somebody in the body will take care of your interests. Rule number two. Risk vulnerability. 
you're thinking, if I just elevate that person with those convictions, they are going to run roughshod. That is the risk you take. But you understand, you cannot guide your community to become like Paul described if you do not risk vulnerability. The second you withdraw and protect yourself because you're afraid no one else will, not only does it mean the body you're in is sick, it means that the behavior you're practicing will not heal it. Look, I'm not trying to be mean, and I'm not trying to be insensitive to what some of you have endured in your churches. Look, we have all been beaten up, I have, by religious people with deep convictions. But to withdraw only causes people to fight back. If arguing with the body or pushing your agenda into the body worked, Jesus would tell you to do it, but it doesn't work. He's, Paul is telling you to step back and risk vulnerability, not because he wants you to be nice. Your mother wants you to be nice. Paul is saying, this is the only thing that works. Nothing else works. Rule number three. So two again was elevate the other person. When you're in a discussion and it's going south and it's getting tense, think about how do I lift up the interests of the other person, even though they seem to be doing quite well. Rule number three, and this is the last rule. We're not done, but this is the last rule. Wow, maybe we are done. Okay. <laughs> Model your behavior after the attitude of Jesus Christ. The model for your behavior is not whether you think it's going to be effective. And the trueness, the authenticity of your, of your words are not in the logic or in the power of your argument. The power of the argument in a Christian community is that it sounds an awful lot like the character of Jesus Christ. So that when you say what you say, the people in the room go, gosh, that sounds like Jesus. So this famous hymn that Paul wrote where he said, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself, he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross, all of these words that we become so familiar with, we go, yeah, 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 yeah. Understand this, Paul is saying these things in the context 
of a church community that is sharply divided. They are fighting with one another. And Paul is saying, your attitude should be like Christ in the context of the community. This is not just about you being a nice person. This is about you being Jesus in his body. So you get to chapter four and you learn that there's two women, Yodia and Suntike, are fighting. And Paul uses the word, I, I urge Yodia and Suntike to agree with one another. Froneo, I urge them to be like-minded. It's the same word that's used in Philippians chapter two because what's happening is Yodia has a section of people in the Philippian church that believe one thing and Suntike has a section of people that believe something else and Yodia's party and Suntike's party are clashing in the Philippian church. They're forming special interest groups and it's tearing apart at the fabric. So you might say, Yodia is, well, how would you say it here? Is a liberal. <laughs> and Suntike is a conservative. Yodia is a social progressive and Suntike is the traditionalist. And when they get together, Yodia likes rock music, but she also likes wearing masks. Mm. She's double vaxxed. And Suntike likes organ music, but she hates masks and she won't get vaxxed. And when these parties, these women and their parties get together in your church, Philippi, they start tearing apart at the fabric. And if you want the body to last and you want it to be strong, You must have the same love. You must be united in Christ, not in your party leader. You are bonded in heart, not in your convictions. And when an argument breaks out in the church and you are treated unjustly, you must default into the personality of Jesus Christ, who, even though he was God, humbled himself. He was not humbled. This was self-inflicted humility. And became obedient unto death. Yodia, Suntike, when you fight, because inevitably you do, you are to each default to the posture of Jesus 
which is to humble himself with no ego, edify the other. Why, even wash their feet. And take on the attitude of the triune God. Euodia, you are to treat Suntike the way the Father treats the Son. And Suntike, you are to need Euodia the way the Son needs the Holy Spirit. This will not be easy. If it was, everybody would do it. A couple of last observations and then I'm done. I'm not even going to do the rest of this thing. The first observation is that what I've just described in a community is something, in my, in my opinion, everybody in your community is looking for. And therein lies the problem. Because when they come into your churches, they come as consumers looking for this. And when they can't find this, they will move on to another congregation. Because they believe wrongly that these are virtues the body is to provide for each member in it. And when they don't find it, the store is empty, then they move on. What Paul is describing is a one another community in which the identity of one is actually divested in the other and the other is divested in the one. Where the roots of two people or five are intertwined under the surface. You couldn't, it's a one and it's a symbiotic community where people naturally default to the other person's interests. This is what people are seeking. But listen to me, church, this is not something you look for in your church. It's something you must bring. You must bring a humility and a building up of other people, a self-forgetfulness, a spirit of forgiveness and forbearance. You must bring into your churches the capacity to forgive and to confess. You must carry someone else's burden before you expect someone to carry yours. Do you know how often I've heard people say, I don't know how long I've been in this church and nobody comes to see me. I say, well, who have you gone to see? Nobody speaks a word of knowledge to me. Who are you speaking words of knowledge to? Dude, you're a consumer. Jesus is not making consumers. He's making disciples. 
who self-forgetfully give themselves to the body. And a strange thing happens in that moment of vulnerability. The body sees the weakness and weakness is the new strength. And when they see weakness, every powerful person in the room rises to its defense. If you would risk humility, if you would risk giving yourself to other people, it would come back to you exponentially. The last observation. This, I've just said it. This is what society is looking for. This is a social alternative. That's what they want. Would you bow your heads? In a moment, I'm just going to release you there. There is no altar call. There is no closing song. Maybe the silence will be more poignant. Maybe you just sit for a moment in silence, meditating on the words of, oh, is it Mary? Be it unto me. as you have said. Lord, it's not my church. It's not somebody else. It's me. Who needs prayer? Then I want to read a passage over you and you can go. Dear Jesus, heal your body because your church is the only hope for this world. There is no plan B. And everyone in this room have seen things? No. We have been involved in things that were unbecoming of the bride. We confess our fears to you, our tendency to defend ourselves or to promote ourselves and ask you to cleanse us and we humbly ask you to inter intervene in relationships in our churches that have 
torn your body in different directions. And we humbly ask that we could be a small part of the healing. So when we go to speak, help us to remain silent. And when we think we know where someone stands, help us to forbear one another in love. And when people annoy us, because Father, you know they inevitably do, help us to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And when people want into our communities and we've got an inner ring, help us to make room for one another, to show hospitality for one another, to accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. And when people confess their sins and they show vulnerability, help us to release them from their sins and to carry the burdens left behind by those sins. And when we pray, help us to pray as a community, not just in our little closets. Help us to pray in our living rooms and in our boardrooms, in our locker rooms. Help us to pray for one another and with one another that the body of Christ may be one in Jesus' name. As prisoners of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Would you stand, please? Be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace for there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, in all, and through all. To him be the glory forever Amen. and ever. Amen.